I know that uh, anytime I decide to preach about current events or wrap it into the sermon, I'm always running a risk. I write my sermons typically on Thursdays, and a lot can change from Thursday to Sunday, uh, including the election. And how can you not at least bring it up as a matter of current events? Um, because as of Thursday, we didn't know if there was an outcome. And to be honest, when you understand that there's going to be a lot of legal wranglings going on yet, I'm, I'm still not sure if there's actually an outcome. I know uh, the news agencies have called a winner. I know that uh, the president is going to make some legal challenges. So this could go on for some time. This could be a current event for a lot of days. Um, and the reality is, is that uh, sometimes we get too caught up in the day-to-day -day that we forget that there's a lot more to this life than just what we're going through right now. Regardless of who you voted for, and regardless of what political party you choose to be part of, regardless of the views you have and what's best for our nation, the truth of the matter is when this is all said and done, when the dust finally settles, there's going to be a bunch of people on one side or the other that basically think it's the end of the world. But it's not. Let me ask you this. 100 years ago this week, who was elected president? Let's see how many history buffs we have here. Do you, do you know? Anybody? Yeah, right. Who was elected president? Do you know? Joe Biden 100 years ago? That's not a bad guess. It was actually Warren G. Harding. Um, and let's think about it. 100 years ago, uh, things weren't that different. The Spanish flu, they were dealing with that. Uh, they were in the midst of World War I, and to be honest, back 100 years ago, racism was just as big of a problem as it is today, or the claims of it being a problem today. And you know what? The world didn't come to an end. Here we are 100 years later. God is still God, and God is still good. I think one of the things that we have a responsibility as Christians is not only to remind ourselves, but to remind this world. It, it, it's important who we elect as our leaders. It's important who we choose to set the course of our nation, but God is still God, and God is still in control. And so all of these kind of events, and it happens to us every four years, it's not the end of the world. I make that point because today we enter into a mini section of the church year. It's the final three Sundays of the church year, of the Trinity season, and they're traditionally known as the end time Sundays. And what the end time Sundays are, the church fathers designated this time of the year for us Christians to actually review what the Bible says about the end of the world. Uh, and about Christians always reminding themselves that we should wait with eager anticipation for the day of the Lord's return. And by studying these things, we're reminding ourselves that this isn't all there is to our lives, to our existence. God has promised us so much more, so much better. And that part of the challenge is getting from here to there, which leads to our lesson today, this what now theme. I'd like to explain that. You see, what we're going to do is we're going to honor the tradition of those last three Sundays and tie it together with this Trinity series we've been going through, Nagging Questions. We're going to look at a couple nagging questions about Judgment Day in the end times. The what, the how, and the when. And the what is the what now. What do, what do we do now until the Lord returns? What does God expect us, Christians, children of God, to be busy doing while we wait? Now, if you notice, and maybe you'll do look over my shoulder as I talk about these things, all three lessons 
come from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And that, that seems a little interesting, or at least intriguing. It has to do with the fact of the background and context of Paul's time in Thessalonica. And I read that for you from Acts chapter 17, but I want to take a little time and show you the background video, and it explains it very well, why there were so many questions amongst these Christians about the end of the world. And as typical, I've added it out for the parts that simply apply to what we're going to study today. So this is the story of Paul's time in Thessalonica. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This is most likely the earliest letter that we have from Paul, and the backstory for it is found in the book of Acts. It's where Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus, and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer, the two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer, and then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. So he opens the letter's second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul, Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. 
Paul closes all of these exhortations like he began with a hopeful prayer that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. So that gives you a, a reminder of what I read for you from the book of Acts. And part of the reason to highlight it and emphasize it is because of the way in which this church was established. It, it was unlike many of the others where Paul actually had a, a serious amount of time where he could talk with people, um, gain rapport with them, and then take some time to really educate them about the Christian movement because it was fairly new. Unfortunately, in Thessalonica, that wasn't the case. Uh, he had only a short period of time and he had to very quickly teach them. And a lot of what he might have taught to other congregations, he didn't have the opportunity to teach to them. And so this letter really answers a lot of the nagging questions they had. And this is the section we'll study today that answers the nagging question we're dealing with. What now? God, what do you want us to do until you return? Paul writes to the Thessalonians, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So as the Thessalonians were asking the same question, what are we supposed to be doing now? Paul simply says, this is what God wants. He wants you to be sanctified. Now, sanctification is one of those church words that we throw around, and, and we've, we've uncovered a lot of those words throughout this series. And uh, if you've been in church any amount of time, you hear these words, and, and after a while, either they lose their meaning, or my spin on it is, unfortunately, the church hasn't really done a, a good enough job of teaching people what sanctification is all about. So let's start with that. What, what is sanctification? Well, I list the word up there for you simply because it is the very first word in the name for the Holy Spirit. It's the term for being holy. Um, and if you really need to get your head wrapped around the concept of sanctification, maybe the best way to look at it is that our lives as Christians, once we're given this gift of faith, is that we are to be like God. In fact, God enables us, he gives us the power through this gift of faith to actually be holy. It was part of last week's lesson about are, are we saints or not? And, and a lot of people have this concept that the only way to ultimately be holy or to become a saint in God's eyes is to do all these good things which is a contradiction to both our nature and God's message of love. He makes us holy by giving us the gift of faith. There's a secondary meaning, and I'm guessing most of you have either heard it or, or brushed shoulders with it. A lot of times sanctification is defined as consecrating something or, or setting it apart. And basically that's what God has done with us through this gift of faith. He's set us apart from our sins. That's what makes us holy. He's also set us apart from the ways of this world, the sinful choices, the immoral ways in which sinful man would choose to live his life. In fact, you see that God's been trying to teach and educate his children about this consecration for thousands of years. If you think back to the time when God took the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai and established with them his covenant and his laws, one set was about their worship life, the ceremonial laws. And what God said is, before something can be used for worship of the true God, you actually have to set it apart. You have to consecrate it. That means that you take it out of its normal and common usage, and then you dedicate it solely for use in worshiping God. 
Now, if you apply that to what Paul is saying to our lives, that's exactly God's will for us, that you be sanctified, that you be set apart from your past life of sin and from the ways of this sinful world, and that your life is now dedicated in service and praise of God. That's probably the simplest way in which we can understand this concept of sanctification. And Paul's trying to explain that, educate the people of Thessalonica, because he just basically didn't have enough time to teach it to them while he was there. So thank God the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this letter in order to answer some of these nagging questions, especially the what now. Now here's what Paul goes on to do. He says, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to help educate you that there's an application for the sanctification in really two specific areas of your life. One would be private and one would be public. The first one he deals with is private and that really is in the realm of our family and marriage and he hones in on the topic of sexual morality. And part of the reason why Paul goes immediately to that is because of the culture in which these Christians now found themselves. I don't know if you've ever studied the Greek culture much or the Greek religions, but part of their worship life was to involve sex with worship. If you spend any time examining the worship of some of these false gods, it is just sickening and disgusting what they've taken, this beautiful gift of sex that God has given to us and is meant to be used within the bounds of marriage, and they've twisted it and turned it into something just disgusting. That's why oftentimes the Bible will actually use adultery as a parable way of talking about idolatry because both are abandoning the one you should love. And so Paul wants to warn these people, these young Christians, that they need to make some very specific choices in their private lives. Now, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll give you the root word or I'll, I'll give you the grammar. I'm not going to do that so much because some of these words just jump out and how Paul used them. For instance, this word for sexual immorality is where we get our word pornography. It comes right from the Greek language. It's pornaya. It, it talks about anything that is outside the design of God's use of sex and love within the bounds of marriage. But more important than the word is how Paul uses it. He puts it in this grammatical way that's all about separation which, if you think about it, goes right back to the concept of sanctification. Don't be like the rest of the world. Is more than just don't do anything that's wrong when it comes to your marriage. What he's actually saying is, is I would want you to honor God, to set your life apart as a sign of praise and worship according to the way that God wants you to live your life, the way that God has designed it. And in fact, what's also interesting is Paul says, this is something in which you make choices. Now, that's the confusing thing sometimes about sanctification, and we have to be very careful because, A, we on our own would go directly to hell because we're sinful, and by our sinful natures, we have no power. But then the Holy Spirit, through the gift of faith, brings us God's love, and he changes us. He beats down the old Adam, and he gives us this new nature, this new man. And there's something intriguing that I think a lot of times we get confused about in our role in our relationship with God, and that deals with sanctification. Being saved is entirely God's work, but living as people who are saved also involves us, this middle voice, and we don't have it in our English language, so it's a little hard to accurately explain, but let me do it like this. When the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of faith, he gives us the initial power to be holy. He's the goal in our Christian life. But at a certain point, once our faith is truly part of who we are in this new man nature, God not only gives us the ability, but the power to make godly choices. 
This middle voice means that the Holy Spirit got us started on the right path, but now part of this is up to us. We have the options. We have this old Adam that wants to do the things that are against God, but we have this new man that is holy and wants to serve God. And that's why every day we face this tug of war of between do I do what I want or do I do what God wants? In fact, Paul emphasizes this point. He says, I want you to take a good look. This word for knowing is examine. Look carefully at the culture in which you live. There are a lot of things that wreck families. There are a lot of things that destroy marriage. Um, sometimes it's money. Uh, sometimes it's religion. Sometimes it's politics. But the number one killer of every intimate relationship is to make the choice that you want to serve yourself rather than your spouse or the God who created you. Paul says that's the world in which you live, Thessalonians, and so I'd like to encourage you to cultivate not only a healthy way of thinking about God's gift of sex, but to treasure the relationships that God has given you. Because not only are they a blessing to you if they're properly observed according to the design in which God has made them, but the people that you count on, the people closest to you, they're the ones that you're most intimate with. Those are the ones that you should turn to as you face these challenges in your life. So don't destroy your support system. Instead, honor God by cultivating what is healthy and what is good. Now that takes care of the private part of life. Paul also wants to talk about their public lives and that has mostly to do with their interaction with one another. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time reading through either letter of the Thessalonians, but the sex part doesn't seem to be their biggest challenge. This seems to be the biggest problem that they had. And quite literally what Paul is saying is, if you want to honor God, then you need to respect each other. And one of the best ways you can respect each other is by minding your own business. Basically what Paul is saying is, when he says this, stay in your own lane, is God has given you gifts and talents. Use those to serve God in your life. And don't be so concerned about what's going on in everybody else's life. In fact, hopefully you can encourage one another to be sanctified. To live up to the holiness that God the Holy Spirit has given to you through the gift of faith. And not be busybodies. In fact, if you look at Paul's second letter, this was such a problem, he had to talk to him about it again. He writes to them, we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Now, next week's lesson will help us to understand a little bit better why Paul writes that. It has to do with another nagging question that they had about the end of the world and Judgment Day. But the reality is that this is an age-old problem, not just amongst the Thessalonians, but amongst everybody, including Christians. That sometimes we find ourselves being tempted with this moral superiority or this holier-than-thou attitude where we feel like it's our job to go around judging other people's lives. And God says, let's start with you judging your own life. Ask to yourself simply this, Thessalonians, are your choices, are your actions, are your thoughts honoring God or honoring yourself? Now, I know this is a little bit deep and this talk of sanctification can become a little bit confusing. And again, I've whined a lot that the church hasn't really done a very good job. And I'll put myself in that camp too. I've had a lot of opportunities to talk about sanctification. And I'm not sure I've always explained it as well as I could have. So I'm going to practice what I preach. And I want to show you a short video. And it's one that I find is excellent in explaining how sanctification works. How God gets us started down the right path. But then how it is a certain responsibility. It goes against that whole, the devil made me do it kind of thing growing up when you don't want to take accountability for your life. And God says, basically, I have made you holy. 
And now I want you to live that way. So how can we do that? This will help us understand. There's this interesting phenomenon in physics where sound vibrations in one object can cause a nearby object to produce sound if the original sound is produced at just the right frequency or pitch. All material objects have what is called a resonant frequency, which is the natural frequency at which it vibrates, and a sound wave oscillating perfectly at the object's resonant frequency will cause it to start vibrating spontaneously. If, for instance, you were to hold down the G note on a piano so that the string is free to vibrate, and then you plunk the G note an octave below it, the vibration of the lower note will cause the higher string naturally to sound even though you didn't strike it, simply because the lower note is vibrating at the higher string's resonant frequency. A note that is sounded at the resonant frequency of a crystal goblet, if it's loud enough, will cause the goblet to vibrate so much that it shatters. This is called sympathetic vibration, and not only does it make for some fascinating science experiments, it also provides us with a vivid analogy for an aspect of the Christian life that is absolutely vital but often overlooked, something called sanctification. Sanctification refers to the process whereby Christians become holy. It is about acquiring and living in holiness, and the Bible is quite clear that this is essential to the Christian life. In one place it says it as bluntly as can be, that without holiness no one can see God. The challenge here is that often the language of holiness conjures up for us images of somber people who have a long list of things they do and don't do, and who feel they need to impose this list on everyone else. But this is not how the Bible conceives of holiness. The Bible continually describes it as something that God does in us and through us as he claims us for himself and works his holiness out in us. In one place it says it like this, May the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. In this sense, holiness is an objective characteristic or quality that God imparts to those who belong to Jesus, not a subjective quality that we obtain through moral effort. We are, in one sense, passive recipients of our holiness. And yet at the same time, holiness is, in fact, about a way of life. It is about men and women actively thinking and speaking and living in a way that reflects God's own holiness. In one place, the Bible says we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. In another place it says we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, these two pictures of holiness, that it is something we passively receive, but also something we actively pursue, can be brought together perhaps if we think about it with the analogy of sympathetic vibration. Because in sympathetic vibration, the sounding note is at just such a frequency that it causes the adjacent object to vibrate spontaneously. And at the same time, there is something about the nature of the object that it will vibrate if it meets a sound wave at the perfect pitch. Our holiness is a matter of our sympathetic vibration, so to speak, with God's own holiness. The sounding note, you might say, is the Holy Spirit. And because this note is indeed a perfect pitch, perfectly conveying to us God's perfect holiness, when it comes into contact with our hearts, passive though they may be, it causes us to begin vibrating in sympathetic harmony with Him. That is to say, our thoughts and words and deeds take on the character and the quality of His thoughts and words and deeds. In this way, we are altogether passive in our sanctification and yet deeply active as we live in harmony with his holiness. Or as the Bible says it, we will be holy because he himself is holy. Hopefully that helps our understanding of sanctification because that's basically the answer to the nagging question, what now? And in fact, Paul is so serious about this, this is how he concludes this section and that answer. Uh, to the Th uh, Thessalonians. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit.
Uh, typically what I'll do for these harder words or, or these intriguing words is give you the root or the etymology or, or the grammar. I'm, I'm treating this one a little differently. All I've done is list off the ways in which this word was originally used and let you peruse through that list. Basically what it's saying is if we stop actually living out the way God created us to live. If we stop recognizing that God has brought us back to that moment of creation before sin, that through the gift of faith he has once again made us holy, has made us capable of doing everything that God created us to do. If we reject that, it's basically like a slap in God's face. And the scripture is filled with examples of what happens when man puts his will above God's will. Every single time when man makes himself God and decides to go his own course or his own path, it always ends in one way. And that's the thing in which Paul is trying to drive home to these Thessalonians. It always ends with the consequences of God's judgment against them. And so as they're wondering about between now and the end of the world, Paul wants to encourage them to listen very carefully to what he has to say. It's not just to keep them busy with the day-to-day. It's to really help them to understand that God has given us this amazing purpose, this ability to have a full life right now. Oftentimes we talk about what's yet to come, and we should. But God also loves us and wants to honor us to honor him even now, in the right now. I'm going to guess that for most of us, we know about Judgment Day. For most of us, we probably have grown up with an educational system or Sunday school or catechism where we were taught what's going to happen when God finally decides this world needs to come to its end. For most of us, a lesson like this is going to be simple review. Except for the fact that there's always this nagging question of the what now. Even though we know someday Jesus is going to return and keep that promise, every morning we wake up with this question, well, God, what do you want me to do with my life right now? And for most of us, hopefully we come to that place in our lives where we recognize this is the gifts and talents that God has given me. This is the course that he's directed me on. And and I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to try to serve and honor God with my words and with my actions. It's, It's as simple as that. Or is it? Then you have weeks like this week where, to be honest, sometimes you wonder if this is really what God wants for us right now. As you wake up, you know, nothing seems to change. In fact, you wake up some days and life seems to have gotten worse. I don't know if you ever face these kind of questions in your mind, but you have to wonder sometimes, like some of the greats of the Bible, has God forgotten about us? Does God even care what's going on in our lives and in this world? And I'm not saying that because of whatever outcome of any election or because of the pandemic, the reality is that sometimes we feel kind of alone and kind of on our own. And we should understand that's the devil tempting us, wanting us to think that maybe God doesn't care. Here's the question that nags at me sometimes, and I get this especially as I visit older members, and they've seen a a lot of God's blessings in their lives. (laughs) And you don't know how difficult it is when when a 90-year-old person wants to go to heaven so bad, and they look me in the eye and go, Pastor, why won't God take me home? How do you answer that? I I usually remind them it's not time. God still has something for them to do. And when they say, well, I can't do anything anymore, I remind them, you can still pray. And there's a lot of things to pray for. The point is, is that God simply does have a plan for our lives right now. We look forward to the day when we finally can go home to heaven. But that's not all there is. God has something for us to do in our lives right now. 
And the biggest part of that is to honor God with our lives, to worship and praise him. That's what we were created for. But you know, there's a lot of people out there that have no clue that that's what this life is about. A lot of people think this is all there is, good or bad, and they have no relationship with the Lord, and they don't understand just how much God wants for them, both now and in eternity. So there's much for us to do. And it's not only with our words and telling others about what Jesus has done for us, but it's also with our lives, mirroring the love that God has shown to us as we show it to them as well. Here's the hard reality. I don't think we talk about this also nearly enough because it's such a difficult topic not to confuse. Certainly Jesus Christ has done everything making it necessary for our sins to be taken away and for our salvation to be made sure. Jesus Christ has opened up heaven to us and we're on our way there. But we don't talk enough about how Jesus has shown us the way to get there. And I don't mean how to save ourselves, I mean how to live our lives until we cross the threshold of heaven. What are we supposed to be doing right now until that day when we can finally stand face to face with God and ask him all of those other nagging questions that we haven't put into this series? You know, Lord, in 2020, why did you do this, this, and this? And God will explain it to you in his amazing way and you're gonna go, oh, that's so obvious. Why didn't I see it? And he'll remind us because you were on earth and not in heaven. Jesus shows us the way because, first and foremost, before he ever died, he lived a perfect life. He lived, let's just say it, a holy life. Well, of course he's God, but he's also human. And at any moment, he could have just thrown up his hands and go, they're not worth it, I'm done. But he didn't. And every time people asked him why, he said, I must do the Father's will. I must do the will of him who sent me. Why? because he wanted to honor his father, and he shows us how to do that. Not just by avoiding sin, but actually living according to the design, the creation of the father. Jesus was sent to do a job, he had a mission, he did it day after day after day. And I don't tell you this to make you feel guilty if you haven't, or if you struggled with it, because Lord knows I have. I tell you this to encourage you because we don't have to blaze our own trail. We have a shepherd who is out leading the way. That's the job of sheep, to follow. And so when we ask the question, what now? Sometimes the answers are pretty simple. The good Lord tells us, follow. You see, every day you have the choice whether you're going to do that or not. I know a lot of people think that was the most important decision they made this last week. It wasn't. Four years from now, we're gonna go through the same thing. I, I, could pretty much guarantee it. A hundred years from now, if God has the world still spinning, they're going to look back at 2020 and go, why did they get so worked up? Just like we look back a hundred years and go, what's the big deal? That's not the most important choice we make in this life. The most important choice we make is to wait with eager anticipation for the day of the Lord's return. He's promised us that, and so we wait. Until then, the what now? We follow Christ, our good shepherd, and our king, that's what. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you felt like you would give up nearly anything to get it? There are many pleasures in this life that will tell you that they can give you fulfillment or happiness or meaning. But I believe that each and every one of us have reached that point where we finally get that something that we want, only to discover that all it ultimately held for us was disappointment. 
And so we move on to the next thing, and then the next, and the next. And some of us are left wondering, is there even a purpose to our lives? Did you know that God understands that we need fulfillment? It's how He created us, and He didn't leave us without an answer. God has given us the answer to a fulfilled life, and that answer is found in a promise. But it's a promise that sometimes we don't want to hear. In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Some of us are engaged in such a determined pursuit of a fulfilling life that we are passing right by the only one who can truly give us life. The issue is not that life is a bad thing. God desires us to have life and life to the full. However, the issue is that some of us have made life a bigger thing than Jesus. We have chosen the pursuit of life over the pursuit of Christ. The question Jesus is asking us in Matthew 16, 25 is, what am I worth to you? What is Jesus worth to you and me? He made it very clear what we were worth to Him when He gave up His life for us in a horribly tragic and painful way. He made it very clear what we were worth to Him when He allowed Himself to be crucified for something He did not do, for something we did. Galatians 2.20 is a powerful statement that we as believers need to live by. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up.